Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Skylit, Skylight Books podcast featuring all the best new authors. I'm Maddie Gobo. I'm your events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Um, today, we have a fantastic conversation between Joanne McNeil and Sarah Jaffe. Uh, Joanne McNeil is the author of Lurking, How a Person Became a User. And Sarah Jaffe is the author of both Necessary Trouble, Americans in Re Revolt, which came out in 2016. And she has a new book coming out in 2021, Work Won't Love You Back, um, which you can pre-order on Skylight Books' website. Um, seems like it's going to be pretty useful in the coming days. Um, so I'm very excited to hear this conversation. Um, everyone, please welcome, you know, in your own minds with your silent applause, uh, Joanne McNeil and Sarah Jaffe. Hi, Joanne. It's <laughs> good to be here again virtually, even if we have to rely on our evil tech overlords to put us all in touch. How it is. I know, I know, I know. So we were talking before about how those evil tech overlords managed to just t turn every crisis into another opportunity to take over our lives further. Yeah, and the last one, the, the situation last time in the Great Recession was a little bit different because <laughs> first of all, we didn't really have the attention on Silicon Valley in those years. Um, there mm. wasn't there were no were there were very very few reporters who were on a tech beat so yeah. if you look back at like 2008 companies like google and amazon were and facebook were all in existence and quite yeah. big and quite powerful and quite dangerous but the scrutiny was from the media wasn't really happening yeah. and in those years um contrast uh a lot of investment moved from real estate and Wall Street into Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, and that those were the years that the, the startups started uh, really in, like Airbnb, um, yeah. Uber, Lyft, all of these of our favorites. <laughs> yeah. That's when they really skyrocketed. Um, yeah. And it is it is very important to to point out that that lack of scrutiny it's not that people loved tech right. 10 years ago in fact yeah. i'd say most people really did not love tech yeah. it's just that there wasn't really oh there weren't a lot of opportunities to um criticize the platforms and have that heard yeah. it, and 
Yeah, I mean, I think I wasn't even on Facebook until 2008 sometime. I wasn't even on Twitter until I think 2007, 2008, right? So these things were not huge parts of our lives as everything was collapsing. And, and in some ways, I feel like the tech, the 2008 election was the first thing that I remember sort of happening on Twitter. Um, and then the crisis, sort of the way it happened in real time, was the f like a thing that made Twitter feel useful. Um, I think I learned about like the Republic windows and doors occupying their factory, uh, workers occupying their factory on Twitter. But it's interesting now to think about Airbnb. I was just scrolling through Facebook and saw the Wall Street Journal promoting an article about all oh, those poor Airbnb hosts who, you know, bought up a bunch of real estate, probably at low prices that were still, you know, down from the crash maybe, and are now screwed because they can't rent out short-term rentals because people aren't going on vacation because coronavirus. Um, and I think it's an interesting sort of both like a line from that crisis to this one, but also like a reminder that all these companies that we treat as sort of like ethereal tech companies do still have roots in the real world. They do still take up physical space. They affect the infrastructure of places. Airbnb, physical infrastructure. Yeah, the way that the tech, we talk about tech companies as though they just sort of happen in the ether rather than actually affect like the real world, real economies, real physical spaces, um, real people's jobs, lives, abilities to catch coronavirus. Absolutely. And you know what the other element there is the iPhone, which came mm. around in 2007. So right. just before uh, Obama is elected, yeah. we have these shiny phones, these smartphones that all of a sudden turn the internet from uh, something we think of as uh, activity that takes place at our desktops. Mm. Um, we're taking it along with us throughout the world. Yeah. And the thing that I think is really interesting about the coronavirus right now is that uh, it's putting us back to how the internet was in 2007 2000 mm. like not since then that um now it has a station again it's interesting not a mobile experience and that's that's where a lot of the the platforms that are doing well things like zoom things or games <laughs> like animal crossing uh tiktok all this kind of in your bedroom activity yeah uh that's um it it feels almost like the last 10 years of mobile hasn't really like, it, yeah. what would have happened if we didn't have mobile phones? We'd probably have technology like we're experiencing right now in quarantine. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but TikTok certainly is kind of like that because it is, it is an app on your phone, but at the same time, like the way that the trends are done end up sort of being like very situated in people's homes or spaces. Um, Anyway, my friend, you know, you remember Anna, who used to work with me at, at Grit TV and whatever, my sometime London roommate. Um, the first time I experienced TikTok, they actually, we actually plugged in the projector in the apartment and watched TikTok videos on the wall like they were TV, which was great fun, actually. Um, I kind of love TikTok, but yeah. Um, although it's interesting, I, I find myself sort of sharing like pictures of like flowers when I'm out walking my dog now. My Instagram has become mm. like a lot more nature content because the only thing I do now is either sit in front of this damn computer or, or walk the dog. So I'm very excited about my neighbors down the street have these like jet black, I think they're irises, although I don't actually know from flowers. Um, and I'm really excited about these kinds of things. Uh, but you know, the iPhone, when you mentioned the iPhone that way, it makes me also think of like, 
there was a whole spate of like really good and some bad, remember Mike Daisy, um, labor reporting around the iPhone, that like the iPhone sort of became this like fetish object um, that then led people to sort of try to de- undo the commodity fetish in that way. Like people were actually like, oh, let's go talk about the people who make your iPhone. Um, and then that leads to, of course, you know, anytime you criticize capitalism, people are like, but you're tweeting from your iPhone. Mm. Um, like the way the iPhone became this thing um, in our minds, a sort of uber symbol of capitalism, um, both its, its upsides of like, ooh, you can have this thing in your pocket at all times. And also, you know, like Foxconn workers committing suicide and them having to put nets outside the building because so many workers killed themselves. Um, it is yeah. a really interesting thing to like sort of peg that back to the last crisis and then think about the ways that like it's become limited right now, you know? That's a great point because it's true that the reporting around Foxconn, that was happening even back 2010. You can find really good reporting about um, the construction of it and the ethics of it. And I think a lot of that had to do with the sense that it was an expensive gadget, Yeah. but it also felt immediately necessary. Within about a year of smartphones, all of a sudden people felt like it, because of the, the, the demands from their jobs, they had to be able to mm -hmm. respond to emails immediately. So like, it didn't feel like a luxury gadget. It was just that it was so yeah. um, urgently, like it was expected, especially if you do work in a position like media, yeah. um, that needing to respond to emails immediately after they happen. Yeah. Um, that was quite, uh, that, that was the strange circumstance because the iPhone originally was, was very expensive. Then the price kept dropping by a couple hundred dollars yeah. and then it became expensive but yeah that's a splurge you can still kind of manage if you're yeah. doing okay um yeah. and and you see like all that shaming around like people who see uh, a homeless person who has an iphone like that sounds like it's no it's actually not very unusual because like you might yeah. act, that might be like your only lifeline yeah. and iphones being so like quite you know they look this mm -hmm. thing but they're an old technology now this yeah. is like uh this has been around since 2007 it's yeah. the the appearance of it was from the beginning like the aesthetics of the iphone were very much about like this is the future mm -hmm. and it is it it is true that there's something about that design that is so classic that even years later it does not seem like it doesn't seem like an old tandy laptop, you know what I mean? It doesn't yeah. have that. Although like, I insist really on having a phone that has a physical keyboard um, <laughs> because I'm that bitch. But like um, the, the thing too about the iPhone is that it also, with all the app driven, you know, gig work, it invaded low wage work too, right? So then like low wage workers need a phone that the apps work on, whether you're doing Instacart work or Uber or whatever. So you, you know, you have this way that like, everyone at every sort of level of work is almost required to have one of these things. Yeah. And you think about like the creep of on-call scheduling in retail mm -hmm. work and, and like food service work, things like that, where you expect, once again, you're still expecting people to be always on and always available. And that usually means they have one of these guys yeah. so that your manager, you know, if you work at the gap and you're scheduled like three on-call shifts per week, right? Um, they expect you to have your phone on you at all times. There's no like, well, I'm not sitting at home by the phone. There's like, well, of course you'll have your phone on you wherever. So of course we can call you in wherever you are. 
So it really has like penetrated all levels of people's lives, even though there's still this sort of pretense that having one is a choice. Yeah. And really like the ability to not have one is kind of a choice. The only people that I know that don't have smartphones are people who have some level, some like real level of autonomy in their work. Um, and that's sort of interesting, right? The yeah. way that this whole thing has shaped the way we are expected to be in contact with work. I, I think that's an interesting point. Like the idea of the privilege of disconnecting. Yeah. Uh, like I know that in, in my book, I have to lay out like, yes, I'm not on Facebook. And yes, actually, that is a privilege because yeah. I very early on was the weirdo who's like, don't contact me here because I only use it for work. Yeah. Uh, when I deactivated, everybody around me knows to either text me, send an email. Yeah. But even things like, you know what I find very interesting, and I didn't quite get into it in my book so much, but like yeah. the idea of email as this decentralized uh, decentralized technology, there's no Zuckerberg of email. Like it might be that everybody uses, everybody you know might use Gmail, but there is an option to use a, a, a non-Google service mm -hmm. for your email. Yeah. But people hate email so much because it's work. They hate, and I feel like I, I, I personally am the weirdo who always gets to inbox zero. I love yeah, email. Yeah, me too. I, I, I love email. Um, but then again, I, yeah. if I were working as the, you know, as an intern for so and so, and had yeah. to do the emails for someone who gets like a thousand emails a day, I'd probably hate email yeah. because I'd hate the work that it, it, like so many people have it conflated with their yeah. job. So when I hear people say, I hate email, but like, I, I try to convince them, look, there is no Jack Dorsey who's making yeah. you use it. It's like, there are yeah. actually very good things about how it's, how it's organized. It's just, you hate all of the like experience yeah. that's connected. And, well, like, you hate your job. You know, like, that's what you hate. You hate your job. <laughs> Normally you hate your job. No, I think it's really interesting. Um, so I have a chapter on tech workers in my upcoming book. And so for that, I did a lot of reading on the history of um, programming and the way that it was gendered, but also um, I read this fascinating book because like one of the big things about the tech industry, right, is this like famous culture of overwork, right? Where like, you know, Facebook and, and Google, they have these big facilities where they make them like a big playground for, you know, what Kate Lossie called the boy kings. Um, like her book is so fascinating on this front. But so one of the books I read on the, the early history of the internet was called where wizards stay up late at night because like that that sentence right is just yeah. like that is the cult of the dude bro programmer who never goes home and doesn't need sleep and is a wizard and a genius and that book is full of these declarations of how genius these people are which is yeah. hilarious because they're like talking about like this, te this technology that simultaneously like a bunch of different people on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean came up with essentially at the same time. And yet all of those people are super individual magic geniuses. And I'm like, that's your, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, but the, the way that they talk about email developing was like, they weren't supposed to be doing it, right? They weren't supposed to be using this fancy technology that the US military was paying them to make to like send each other jokes back and forth. But that immediately became the first thing that they used the internet for. And I, I kind of love that. I don't know. I think that I love the way that it like became immediately social rather than just military um, as the wrench that got stuck in the machine. And that's sort of why I resent Facebook. And we always come back to this piece that I wrote for you in friggin' 2012 
the way that like yeah like I I hate that there's a friggin ad on everything and that like my phone is such a cop that I was talking to my roommate um last night about getting a salad from sweet green and the next thing I know Instagram is sending me ads for sweet green which I've never been to and never googled so it's definitely just listening to our conversations um that's me and my phone being a cop so yeah it's that thing where it's like I want to be able to talk to people I appreciate that I can like see your face right now while we're having this conversation um I don't like that zoom is probably recording this somewhere and like keeping track of us and that everybody knows about my actually I love that everybody knows about my George Michael um dude in my room that's that's a lot but you know what I mean like I I, I hate that in order to have this ability to communicate which is wonderful we have to deal with these assholes, basically, yeah. um, trying to skim a profit off of every layer of it. Um, so my friends in the UK, actually, I forgot to retweet this, and Amelia's going to kill me. Um, my friends at Commonwealth, which is one of the um, lefty think tanks that sort of grew out of the Corbyn movement in London, um, are launched a new paper today on public broadband and sort of public access to the internet and why this crisis is showing how important that is. Um, and it made me think of the West Virginia teachers that I was talking to last week and the way that they're, you know, trying to teach remotely, except like rural broadband is like not really a thing in the U.S. at all. So there are tons of their students who just like can't get in contact with anyone because they don't have functional internet access in big chunks of West Virginia. Yeah, that's still an issue. The digital divide didn't go away. Um, And even we can talk about experiences of people who are not even breaking even if they're working as Instacart shoppers Mm -hmm. who still have iPhones. But the reality is that like there are so many expectations on people to have an internet life um, one thing I think is interesting about what, where we're at in this conversation is that, and very different from the 2008, if we were having this conversation in 2008, is we don't have to have, we don't have to justify the, the internet. We don't have to, to say, well, there are obviously good things that come out of being online. Because if it were 2008, I'd probably have to spend about 20 minutes saying, you know, the internet has some good elements. It's not all terrible. <laughs> and I have to like explain that I'm not an idiot because I used a blog and I'm, you know, like all of these kind of, there was just so much shaming. And I, and I can see it like in retrospect, it's a lot of like, you know, the, the, a lot of longtime media workers who can sense that something's really sketchy yeah. about the internet, but, but aiming their, aiming their criticism at the wrong targets, which would be the bloggers themselves or internet users rather than the uh, the heads of these companies, right. the, the organizations of these yeah. companies. So yeah. that's like, if you, that, that was the other frustrating thing about, you know, that, that moment in, uh, in the, in tech and the great recession was mm-hmm. having, when there were just a few pages about the internet in, any publications either yes the internet it would be either uh something about how great it is like look well all of these industries are doing bad but amazon is hiring in its warehouses yay or it would be something like oh i just logged on twitter and it was a total waste of time it's all these morons talking about their breakfast wow like (laughs) 
<laughs> breakfast <laughs> is always a thing, isn't it? Everybody's obsessed with breakfast. Um, like, there were three years where like the only criticism about Twitter, when there were, there were plenty of reasons to criticize it, but the only thing that would ever get in like pages in magazines and, and newspapers were like, the people on it are dumb and yeah. they eat breakfast. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Um, it's funny, I remember being an intern at The Nation magazine in like the summer of 2009 and I was on Twitter and I had been on Twitter, like I said, since, you know, I remember the 2008 election happening on Twitter. Um, and all of these smug jerks who were interns with me, let's just be super real about it, who had all graduated from Ivy League schools, were like, the internet. And I was like, yeah, you're all going to Columbia grad school where you're going to be trained for newspaper jobs that don't exist. So mazel tov with your, the internet isn't going to be a real thing um, because all of your jobs are going to be on the internet in the next 10 years. And guess what? They are. Um, and that doesn't, hasn't made them at all any more stable, right? There's another wave of layoffs right now, even though there are more eyeballs on digital media than ever because everybody's trapped at home and desperate for news, but advertising is evaporating and so, so are journalism jobs in a moment when people are reading more and more stuff. And so it's just like, again, like all of these things that have disrupted the models that you know stuff was already based on in many cases that model was already broken newspapers were already having a profit crisis before like the internet um but it is you know it has changed and not changed a lot of things it sort of just moved some of the things that were already weird add-ons into another place. So like advertising was always a weird thing to have next to reporting on like local political news but that's how people decided to do it a hundred years ago. So cool. And now all the advertising goes through Facebook. So media companies are not, you know, getting their ad dollars because Facebook has taken away all the ad money. So great. Now what? Well, we always had a broken model. Facebook just like successfully broke it more, but it wasn't like a good thing in 1990 that, journalism was funded by advertising. So, and you know, like there were workers killing themselves in factories before the iPhone, right? Like these are things that, that become sort of symbols of problems that like the problem is not those things. The problem is capitalism. <laughs> and we can, we can do all we want to to try to change that. We can say like, order my book from Skylight Books, which I'm saying, order my book from Skylight Books rather than Amazon, please. You know, do that. That would be great. We would love it if you did that. But like, that's not going to make Amazon go away. And now we're hearing that Jeff Bezos is probably going to become the world's first trillionaire. <laughs> Joanne's just like depressed now that I said I'm just that. depressed. I mean, it's the reality. It's just, <laughs> it's just you know, as, as much as I could be like, oh, well, there are some good things that are on the horizon. People are thinking about decentralization. And I do have to say that if there's one thing that gives me hope, it is that like the cynicism about Silicon Valley right now is exciting. Yeah. I mean, I've been waiting <laughs> for this moment for ages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and cynicism from people who, you know, the, the kind of 
people in media who would ordinarily think, well, Mark Zuckerberg looks like he could be a friend of mine. So I'm sure he's a nice guy. Like those kind of people yeah. are like, oh, I, I see why he's not really someone I'd be friends with. Okay. Yeah. I should be scared of that person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the way that like, I think, I don't know. I, I, I always hesitate to just be like, oh, the crisis will make things better. Cause like, no, the crisis won't make things better. But we are, you know, just here sort of with like successive sort of veils being torn off this thing that gets uglier and uglier every time you pull one away. And, you know, I keep saying like the, the coronavirus has just made it obvious what was obvious all along, which is like your choice is work or die. Yeah. And now it's work and die. But, <laughs> you know, um, that was always true. Like meatpacking plants are the number one or meatpacking plants in prisons are the places that the, the virus is spreading the most. Like the number one sort of uh, the top clusters in like the top 40, like so many of them are meatpacking plants and prisons, which were already horrible, violent, death-making places for so many reasons. And I'm not even a vegetarian, but like, you know, there's a reason that these places that were already awful, awful places to be a human in are even worse now um and that stuff is just getting that much more obvious so no actually if there were one if we were to end on like a hopeful note i would we've already mentioned kate lossie who wrote the boy kings yes and she wrote a piece early on in the quarantine i want to say like mid-march somehow she banged out the take about silicon valley and and um the coronavirus crisis which was that the reason that we're not seeing these Silicon Valley guys be super officious in ways that like, you know how whenever there's a problem, they show up on Twitter and they're like, well, here's a, model. Here's a reason, yeah. just do one, two, three, and, and yeah. you'll be successful again. Like they just did not, um, they didn't show up this time. They were very quiet. Yeah. And her response was that, of course they are, because their mentality is all scale. And the yeah. answer to this crisis is obviously like, the opposite of that we have to quarantine we have to kind of be in our like hyper local situations and right. they don't really know how to capitalize on that because it's the, they don't know how to capitalize on mutual aid because it yeah. does not you can't do that so I, I think there is something that like that people do have an idea of what mutual aid is that people do have an idea of like their impact on a very local uh, yeah. local level um that that's at least encouraging to see. Yeah, although everybody, every mutual aid group that I'm in is on Facebook or WhatsApp, so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> or Google Docs. <laughs> or Google Docs, yeah. I don't, I, I feel like I'm in all these, these Facebook groups. Um, but I mean, they're, they're, that's the thing. Like, I, I, to go back to my smug co-interns, the thing that made them all realize that I was right and they were wrong was the Green Revolution in Iran that summer. And suddenly, you know, and that was way overstated that that was like a Twitter revolution. But like, suddenly they were like, oh, Twitter, huh? We see how these things can be useful. And so now, you know, we've seen how these things can be useful because we're, we're using them in real time still. And there's no reason why you can't have like WhatsApp as a public utility, right? Like there's no reason why you can't make a publicly owned, you know, um, I don't want to say secure, but like something where like 
Jack Dorsey and, and Mark Zuckerberg don't own it and don't have like a giant warehouse somewhere where they have all of our information that they privately hold. Um, these are things that we can think about as public infrastructure, whether we're talking about just, you know, the, the hardware of broadband to the privacy of our data and our conversations. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a conversation that I think we have to be having right now. It's like, okay, what are these things doing that is necessary and useful? And then how do we um, take away the control from this tiny handful of white dudes? Yeah. <laughs> we have to, as your piece says, nationalize Amazon. Nationalize Amazon, but um, uh, take my, it all away. My, but like, what my is response a to that? How yeah. has been? I, I, I don't. I think we have to like give it a new name and really like, oh yes, so like clean it up because like yeah. that is just symbolic of everything horrible in the world. Like it's just yes. even horrible on the on Earth and in the sky. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the thing about these things is is that like they exist in a way that is shaped by the people who made them and the, the you know, pursuit of profit, right? So we, um, you write about how Zuckerberg, in, you know, invented Facebook as a way to rate the hot girls on his campus. And so the people's Facebook would be something that wasn't hopefully at least designed yeah, just really to rate the hot girls on campus. These urges of yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I always, you know, I, I my phone is lighting up with a friend of mine who lives in the UK who I like didn't even know that well before this crisis but for whatever reason we've gotten really really close and now we check on each other every day and talk sometimes several times a day just like and it's in Instagram messages because that's just where it was um and so I think that the the sort of human need to connect through all of this is really amazing and hopeful and we just have to take away the ability of somebody else to profit off of that. That is a lovely note to end on. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap us up. Um, thank All you right. so much for this conversation. It was uh, really invigorating actually. Um, <laughs> really good. Really fired me up and gave me a little bit of hope at the end. So thank you both yeah. so much for, for being here today. Yeah, thank oh, you. Thank this you is guys. fun. This was fun. <laughs> right, and everyone, please order these books by Joanne McNeil and Sarah Jaffe on skylightbooks.com, and you can learn more about how to overthrow these tech overlords. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.